5: It is one of the great paradoxes of history, in a way, that Stalin, the most suspicious of all people, should have been fooled by Hitler. And it is a very strange, sort of, if you like, psychological conundrum, in a way, that Stalin should have been in denial to such a degree.
3: That was Anthony Beaver talking to us about Operation Barbarossa. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello, and welcome to our second podcast of June 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. It was 75 years ago this month, in June 1941, that Nazi Germany launched Operation Barbarossa. This huge assault against the Soviet Union was at the time the largest invasion in history and on its outcome hinged the fate of both totalitarian dictatorships. Military historian Anthony Beaver has written in-depth about the Nazi-Soviet clash in books including Stalingrad, Berlin and his history of the Second World War. I paid a visit to Antony in his London home recently to discuss one of the most pivotal events of the 20th century. Did Hitler always plan to invade the Soviet Union? Or what, You at know, which point in his career did this idea occur to him? Well, Hitler
5: quite often fluctuated in his attitudes towards great projects. But I think the invasion of the Soviet Union was something which went back really all the way to the Reta Republic of, of, of 1919. I mean, his, uh, his, his detestation of uh, uh, Bolshevism uh, was absolutely uh, visceral. But it was also influenced, and I think this is often underestimated by historians, it was also influenced by the occupation of Ukraine by Field Marshal von Eichhorn in late 1918, or the most of 1918, and the idea that Ukraine would be the breadbasket for Germany in the future and prevent any repetition of British uh, blockade and the starvation which that caused to Germany during that particular period. So it was strategic as well as sort of visceral in his hatred of Bolshevism. The real plan didn't, of course, come about in detail really until sort of December 1940. I mean, it had been mulling over in his mind. What is ironic, I think, and is quite important to remember is that Hitler justified to his generals that the invasion of um, Russia was essential because it was the only way to knock Britain out of the war, i.e. if he uh, knocked the Soviet Union to pieces, uh, then Britain would give up and would surrender, which is a curious justification, a curious analysis, if you like, of the situation. And then even more paradoxically, come um, December 1941, he, he justified his declaration of war on the United States on the grounds that um, this was one way to force Britain out of the war. I mean, it's very, 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 very bizarre in, um, in thinking, but we know, um, we know Hitler had this sort of uh, curious uh, confusion, uh, certainly also a confusion, of course, and effect as well. But anyway, as I say, December really in 1940 uh, was when he really did start serious planning.
3: But if it had been a long-term goal for him, then I suppose that means a Nazi-Soviet pact was never intended to be anything other than a temporary expedient for the Germans.
5: Oh, exactly. I mean, the nazi soviet Pact uh, was quite deliberate. He realised that he needed to knock out the Western allies first. And uh, it showed sort of remarkable confidence and, I suppose, perspicacity in a way, when one thinks of the bloodbath on the Western Front in the First World War. And, you know, even Churchill at that particular stage was convinced that, you know, the French army was the most powerful in the world and so forth and that um, the Germans would sort of smash their heads against it. But it is also quite interesting the way that sort of some historians have looked at the whole question of the uh, French army and they feel that if it hadn't been for Gamelin and his plan, you know, that the French army might not have um, collapsed in the way that it did and that the reports of the disintegration due to political infighting in France and all the rest of it was exaggerated. Now, um, I'm not entirely convinced about this. I mean, I think that there's a large element of both. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a new area, shall we say, of debate which has suddenly uh, developed. But there was one thing that was certain from Stalin's point of view, was that he was uh, hoping very much that... Uh, um, the uh, capitalist states and the Nazi uh, power uh, were going were gonna to bleed each other dry. And that was his calculation on the part of the um, nazi soviet Pact uh, and why it was essential to Russia. Not just a question of immediate self-defence, having purged the Red Army and needing to be able to postpone any fight with, with, with Germany.
3: The timing of Barbarossa is, is quite interesting because um, I know some historians have said that they left it too long and they became diverted in other campaigns, which meant that the Russian winter came in before they could get to Moscow. Do you think that, Bar- do you agree that Barbarossa was launched too late to have any chance of success?
5: It is certainly true uh, that Barbarossa was la- launched too late. And there's been quite often debate about this. Um, I mean, it's amazing the way that this one still carries on. I mean, actually, even at the time, it was fairly well known that actually it was the weather. I mean, it had been one of the wettest Uh, winters 1940 and 1941 and it was two problems. One problem was the um, way that the forward airfields of the Luftwaffe had been totally inundated and simply couldn't take the aircraft until they dried out. The other one of course was the um, redistribution of motor transport to German divisions before the invasion and very interestingly nearly 80 percent of some of the divisions at motor transport came from the French army. And this was one of the reasons why Stalin loathed the French um, and uh, despised the French, and why he sort of basically uh, said at Tehran, you know, that the French should be treated as um, traitors and collaborators and all the rest of it, because that the motorised... Arm really of the of the Vermeer, largely came from the French army, and the fact that the French had not destroyed their vehicles on surrender was for Stalin, you know, a really serious element against them. But so it was basically a distribution of uh, motor transport, airfields which had been completely inundated. But Operation Marita um, and the whole question of the invasion of Greece, uh, Yugoslavia, Greece, and um, later Crete, uh, were not really um, a major effect in. Delaying Barbarossa,
3: and, and on the other side side of the invasion, Stalin is was, seems to be known as someone who's incredibly paranoid and very suspicious. But how was it that he missed so many intelligence reports telling him there's going to be an attack from a fairly fairly obvious source?
5: You're right. It is one of the great paradoxes of history in a way that Stalin, the most suspicious uh, of all people, should have been fooled by Hitler, and it is a very strange sort of, if you like, psychological conundrum in a way. ...that Stalin should have been in denial to such a degree... Now, I mean, this has led to a whole lot of raft of different theories, you know, icebreaker, Suwarov's um, icebreaker thing of uh, uh, actually Stalin was secretly planning to invade uh, Germany first and all the rest of it. A load of rubbish. I mean, all of that's based on that paper of the um, 11th of May or whatever, which was basically a contingency planning document by Zhukov and others, who by then were well aware of um, Nazi preparations to invade the Soviet Union, but Stalin simply would not accept it. And so, you know, it was quite right that uh, any uh, general staff should start examining responses, if you like, to a preparation in that particular way. And one of them, of course, was the examination of a preemptive strike at that particular point. Actually, you know, the Red Army was totally incapable of carrying it out. The very fact, actually, that, you know, all of the prime movers for the artillery, in fact, uh, were actually tractors which were being used in the harvest shows um, that um, they were simply not prepared for an attack at that particular time. But Stalin rejected every single warning that he got, uh, not just, of course, from the British, but even from his own uh, diplomats and spies and so forth. He, ever since the Spanish Civil War, was completely obsessed that anybody uh, living abroad had been corrupted by abroad and therefore was sort of somehow instinctively anti soviet uh, So that's why he um, rejected the uh, warnings from Berlin, even the fact that they managed to send back a miniature dictionary for German troops. Which they got hold of, showing um, terms like you know take me to your uh, take me to your uh, the collective farm chairman and hands up and uh, all the all the terms that you would expect for German troops to need in the event of an invasion. So I mean he had a whole raft of it, but he was convinced that this was all an Angiski pomikatskaya, i.e. an English provocation to uh, force a uh, a fight with Germany uh, to save Britain, and that was why. Um, he, A, rejected all the British ones, but even, as I say, the ones um, coming from his own sources.
3: So his suspicion of, of his own sources and, and of the, suppose, the capitalist West overrode his suspicion of the Nazis then, in a way.
5: It did, yes. I mean, in a way, this is too extraordinary. I mean, he even um, accepted uh, the assurance of Hitler that the reason why so many troops were being moved, and this is unbelievable, that so many troops were being moved um, to the east, deployed in uh, East Prussia, um, occupied Poland and, uh, and further south, was to get them out of the range of the bombing of the British. Well, I mean, you'd have thought that he'd have done a little bit of research uh, on the range of British bombers and all the rest of it. And also to know that the British bombing um, arm, bomber command at that particular stage, was so weak and pathetic, I mean, with just Wellingtons and so forth, um, that they'd have been almost incapable of making any form of a dent, if you like, into uh, German forces.
3: What were the Germans' actual goals in Operation Barbarossa? I mean, clearly they wanted to defeat the Soviet Union. Did they plan to conquer the entire country? What were they actually hoping to achieve?
5: The plan was to advance to the, what was called the AA line, the Archangel-Astrakhan line. And they felt that by, this basically would have taken them beyond Moscow, more or less beyond the line of the, uh, the, line of the vo- Volga, more or less the line of the Volga. And that's why, in fact, when it came to the Battle of Stalingrad, so many German troops felt we've only got to capture Stalingrad, we're on the Volga, and that will, that will have meant we've won the war. So that was the sort of the the line, the idea being that any Soviet troops who'd been left after the great battles of encirclement uh, in the early part of Barbarossa would simply be a rump and that um, they could be kept under control by bombing. And then they would be able to open up, as they thought of it, Russia and the Ukraine for German settlement and uh, colonisation and you know they would even they were even planning these sort of uh, occupational settlements where sort of you know soldiers would be given land with their families and so forth and uh, uh, the hunger plan uh, back as uh, hunger plan would uh, have reduced the population dramatically the population of the major cities would have been starved to death they reckoned on 35 million uh, uh 35 million being killed so the whole project, in a way, uh, you know, depended on this sort of uh, rapid advance to that particular line and, above all, the destruction of the Red Army through these vast battles of encirclement, of which some took place. I mean, you know, the Kiev was the, probably the, one of the largest battles in the world in terms of the number of uh, prisoners taken.
3: Did this plan have any realistic prospect of success? I mean, we know it didn't work, but is there any way it could have worked?
5: It's a very, very hard one to answer, in a way. Uh, what was interesting was Stamenoff, the uh, Bulgarian ambassador, who was approached in a moment of panic by Stalin, because, uh, you know, Stalin really did think that sort of Moscow was going to fall. This was later in October. And that sort of everything was about to fall to pieces. And Stamanov said, but you're crazy. You know, even if you withdraw all the way to the Urals, you'll win in the end. Um, the, basically, the reason why it probably wasn't going to work was twofold. One was that simply the sheer size of the country meant that um, the Wehrmacht and with the Romanian and Hungarian allies and so forth never actually had sufficient troops for the occupation of such a huge area uh, and the conquest of such a huge area. And the other one was, and this was where, interestingly, Hitler had failed to learn the lessons, you would have thought that he might have studied the Japanese assault on China. Because, you know, you'd had German generals with the nationalist Chinese armies, and um, therefore you would have thought they they would have had the opportunity to study that particular lesson. And the lesson there was that if you have even a um, highly mechanised and uh, uh, technically superior enemy as in um, attacking a, uh, a large country with a vast uh, landmass, they can certainly win the beginning. But the shock and awe of cruelty, which was used by the Japanese and also which Hitler used against the Soviet Union, actually provokes as much resistance as it does panic and Uh, chaos. And um, this, of course, was never taken into account. Hitler was convinced, kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come tumbling down, was the great phrase that he kept using. And he was convinced that that initial shock would produce a total collapse. But he completely underestimated, uh, if you like, the visceral patriotism of most Russians and the idea, the real feeling of outrage which had nothing to do with communism or Stalin or anything like that, uh, as Stalin himself recognised. Um, it was a sort of a, a really a visceral reaction, and despite the horrific losses, um, a determination to fight on.
3: And speaking of historical lessons, had Germany not considered the, the lessons of Napoleon uh, 150 years earlier, or even of the First World War, and how difficult it can be to conquer Russia...
5: Well, it's interesting because, again, you know, talk about mines operating on different levels. Hitler was always very conscious of Napoleon. I mean, one of the reasons why he insisted on attacking uh, Leningrad was that he, he was reluctant to follow Napoleon's main route, uh, the Smolensk route, to, um, to Moscow, which was one of the reasons for the delay. I mean, if he, um, some people have argued that if Hitler uh, had uh, ignored Leningrad and uh, just literally forced on through straight to, straight to Moscow, then he could have captured Moscow. Would that have meant that he'd won? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But again, that means, you know, that's again the sort of taking the counterfactual a bit too, a bit too far. But the very fact of the division of his forces, basically in three, meant that he didn't actually achieve the depth that he might have done, and perhaps the encirclements that he could have done. I mean, he certainly achieved huge encirclements, but not the total destruction of the Red Army as he had hoped. His officers were certainly um, very all too conscious. I mean, most of the officers who I interviewed who had been taken part in Barbarossa, they all said, you know, we were all reading Colin and his memoirs and um, the, the, the descriptions of the advance. I mean, they were very, very conscious of it, and they all had very mixed feelings of elation at the idea of finally were against the Bolshevik enemy, but also sort of you know bewildered fear at the knowledge of how vast Russia was. You know, could we are we going to get completely lost and drowned in this vast landmass?
3: And at what point during Barbarossa did the Germans soldiers and officers begin to realise that things weren't going to go their way?
5: Well, some some sooner than others, I mean, inevitably. Mm. Some started to realise, I think, even in the summer, that they hadn't got quite as far as they'd hoped or that uh, the Red Army was still fighting. Where were these divisions coming from? Um, they had underestimated, seriously underestimated, the size of the Red Army. But I think it was when, on the, funny enough, of where else, but on the field of Borodino, uh, when the first Siberian divisions started to arrive, well-equipped and all the rest of it. You know, where are these fresh divisions coming from? Um, this is when they've really started to worry. And you can see it in Halda's diaries and, and so forth. First of all, the feelings of total exhilaration, thinking, you know, the enemy has had it. Uh, then them start moments of little bits of doubt, and then really quite serious doubt.
3: How important would you say the Russian winter was in, in deciding the Battle of the Moscow?
5: Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the the, the scale, the depth of that winter and the frosts, and it was a particularly cold winter. Um, sometimes the temperatures even going down to uh, often below minus 20, sometimes going down to sort of minus 40. And the trouble was that the Germans were simply not equipped for it, both in terms of clothing and also in terms of weapons. Oil, I mean, the Russians had the, exactly the right sort of oil for their uh, weapons. The Germans, I mean, you know, their problem was their, their machine guns were often just freezing solid. You know, all you could do was actually to piss on it. And even then, that could have been uh, a problem. I mean, funny enough, the Americans found the same thing in the Ardennes. And uh, as I say, yes, clothing and the other, um, but also the very fact that the um, T-34 had had broad tracks, which could cope with the snow. German panzers had very narrow tracks on their tanks, which couldn't cope with the snow in the same sort of way. And the other problem had been already, as you know, the um, the rasputitsa, the uh, the autumn muds, and so forth. So already they were slowed down by the autumn muds, and they had underestimated the roads, if you like, or the the bad quality of the roads, and then the effect of the uh, of the real frost and of course the Luftwaffe, you know, having to have light fires under the engines of their aircraft, purely so as to be able to get the motors started in the morning. The use of how much fuel had to be used to keep motors running the whole evening or whole night just so that they'd be ready to start again the next morning, otherwise they'd be frozen solid. All of these were sort of cumulative effect. But I think the real psychological one was the, the fact that where these divisions come from. They simply could not imagine that any army could st- keep recreating new divisions and suddenly throwing them into the attack.
3: Was the failure to take Moscow? Was that basically did that doom Barbarossa? After that, was there was that really there's no, not really prospect that Germany could win? Well, one
5: has to remember. I mean, I, I, I would have said, you know, there are the, the rather, one's got to look at the sort of the main, if you like, key turning points of the war. Well, the very first one, of course, was late May 1940 when Churchill made the decision to fight on and all the rest of it. Because that was the one moment when Hitler could have won the whole war. As uh, General Reinhardt, um, Reinhard, who is a um, Bundeswehr general, not a Nazi general, wrote, and I think most people have ex- accepted, uh, his definition that December 1941 was the geopolitical turning point of the whole war because not just the question of, of the Wehrmacht being stopped in front of uh, Moscow uh, but of course then Hitler's um, declaration of war on the United States and from that point on there was no way that Hitler could have won and then Stalingrad actually was the psychological turning point. What one underestimates now looking back is that 1942 um, all of the Allies, the British, the Americans, um, and, of course, the Soviet Union, um, really thought they could still lose the war. Um, I mean, 1942 was an appalling year, up until that autumn, when one started to have the change in North Africa, in the Pacific, and, of course, in Russia. Now, the key thing was that the both the Japanese, after a much shorter period of time, of course, and the Wehrmacht had reached their cumulative point, i.e. their moment of, of, of maximum advance, uh, whether in the Pacific or whether into the Caucasus and um, southeastern Russia, and they had lost the momentum in both cases. And once they had lost the momentum, particularly in the case of the Wehrmacht, uh, they had also lost the um, advantages of ability and uh, surprise.
3: So, so if Moscow was a turning point, then at the time they hadn't necessarily realised it. The, the leaders of the Allies wouldn't have realised.
5: Well, they did realise it in the sense, I mean, as far as Churchill was concerned, you know, the moment that uh, Pearl Harbor happened and America was brought into the war, Churchill knew from that moment on that the Allies could not lose. Obviously then he had some very, very nasty shocks afterwards, fall of Singapore, etc, etc, you know. Um, there was, in fact, and this is that, that, as I was saying, that period of 1942, when one horror after another happened, you know. The British pushed all the way back to back virtually almost to the gates of Cairo and, you know, you've only got to look one's got to look at the diaries at the time, I mean the danger of looking at history retrospectively you've got to see how things were at the time and what they looked about uh, looked like, I mean, the British actually at that particular stage were even wondering, do, do we start destroying the Aberdan oil wells because they thought they were going to lose the whole of the Middle East and they thought that, you know, the Germans were going to come down through the Caucasus and Rommel was going to uh, charge through and link up and all the rest of it and the was already a feeling of that, that we've lost it completely but that was not the case because what they had underestimated was this question of you know the cumulative cumulative point
3: how do you rate the performance of the two leaders in the opening months of Barbarossa I mean would it would be fair to say that the Germany and Russia and Soviet Union would have been better off without Hitler and Stalin
5: Well, no. um, The interesting thing is, in a way, in very sort of rough terms, Hitler's, if you like, military reputation, of course, uh, was still very, very high at that particular point. It was actually starting to go down. Well, Stalin's was disastrous during 1941. His handling was disastrous during 1941. But by the late autumn, or certainly by the late autumn of 1942, he was suddenly starting to realise how to handle things and was about to become a very effective war leader. I mean, I always thought it was quite ironic the way that um, uh, by, by 1944, the British cancelled Operation Foxley the plan to assassinate Hitler because um, they'd realised by then that actually they were going to win the war more rapidly with Hitler in, in uh, military command than getting away with him. Stalin paradoxically, decided to cancel his own plans to uh, assassinate Hitler because he was afraid, of course, that the um, typical Stalin, judging other people by himself, um, was afraid that the Western Allies might make a deal with a successor regime. So uh, he cancelled his plans to assassinate Hitler. But anyway, I, I always find that one of the more amusing paradoxes of the Second World War.
3: In, in the early months, Bob Ross is it Vasily Stalin in many ways impeded the Soviet Union's defences?
5: Yes, um, of course. I mean his his um, refusal to allow withdrawal, particularly from the Kiev um, encirclement, you know, meant the loss of um, hundreds of thousands of men. I mean that even happened again in 1942 in what was called the famous um, Baranova mouse, mouse trap when Timoshenko launched this uh, large offensive. Uh, In fact, just before the Germans were about to launch Operation Blue towards Stalin, well, in fact, towards the Caucasus, um, and all the German troops were on the the ready, ready, um, there was a massive encirclement by the Germans there in the summer of 1942. And Stalin refused to allow retreat, and that's when they lost several armies, cut off. So it was Stalin's basically sort of, you know, many ways, inhuman refusal um, to allow any form of sort of withdrawal or whatever. Um, You know, it was a sort of a stand or die uh, order every single time. Um, And there was very, very little flexibility. Uh, And it was only really towards at uh, the end, um, in the last stage of the retreat to Moscow, uh, that Stalin was allowing more flexibility, which, fa- thank God, because, I mean, that saved enough troops to um, to true defend Moscow at that particular stage.
3: Was there any danger that the Soviet uh, regime might have collapsed or been overthrown in the early months of Barbarossa, considering they weren't necessarily universally popular and the war was turning very much against them at that time?
5: There was no chance of any overthrow of any overthrow by popular revolt or anything like that. There was no, funny enough, very little criticism because, of course, nobody really knew what was happening in that particular sense. Uh, the only question would have been a palace coup. And, of course, there's the famous moment when, you know, they went go out to the Dacha, where Stalin is, ha, has gone into a complete funk and frozen and all the rest of it. And, you know, there is, there's that fantastic description of when Stalin sort of sees them arrive and he thinks they've come to arrest him and, um, sort of, you know, to um, throw him over. But as soon as he realises that actually sort of they're scared too, but, you know, they're trying to persuade him that he's got to... That's when things, things change and it sort of all comes back together again. That's, that was really the only moment. It could only have been an, uh, a sort of a palace coup which could have uh, uh, got rid of him at that particular point. There was no question of a popular revolt. The anger of the people at that particular stage was entirely focused on the, on, on the Germans, of this sort of surprise attack, this treasonous breaking of the uh, Nazi-Soviet pact. Which people have been uneasy about anyway, but they, all of their hatred was focused against the Germans at that point.
3: A major part of Operation Barbarossa was, of course, the Germans' horrendous abuses of civilians, mm. and especially obviously the Jewish community and also communists and huge numbers of other people. I mean, did, did this in the end actually detract from the German invasion plans? Not
5: really in 1941. I mean, the resources allocated to the Einsatzgruppen the Sonderkommandos and so forth uh, and the police battalions and all the rest of it was not actually detracting really from the war effort. You can then argue very much more that by sort of 42 when you have the final solution what Vasily Grossman after the shower by bullets he's now then talking about the shower by gas of course by that stage then they are allocating vast quantities of the Heisbahn to uh, of the railway system you know to the transport of uh, of Jews when in fact that's when they should have been allocating them all to the support of the armies so not in 41 but I would have said so in 42 one thing which I actually should have added earlier it was of course the one chance of them perhaps winning In forty one was the way that the Abwehr and um, many of the, shall we say, more educated officers had been advocating. They're saying the only way that we can win in Russia is by creating a Ukrainian army, a million strong. And this, of course, was absolute anathema to Hitler on those grounds, and that's why. They had to sort of come up with all of these ideas of calling Russians in Fairmark uniform and calling them Cossack and Zuga. I mean, of uh, Cossack pl- platoons and so forth. Because Hitler, in his ludicrous uh, way, would accept the idea of Cossacks, but he wouldn't accept the idea of Slavs. Well, I mean, of course, the Cossacks were Slavs themselves. I mean, you know, but it was a ludicrous thing. And later, you even have Himmler. You know, let's face it, you know, supposedly one of the great racial ideologues raising a Galician SS division of Ukrainians says to pretend they weren't Slavs. I mean, you know, it it was all simply preposterous in that particular way. But there's no doubt about it, if they they were going to have any chance of success... To make up, if you like, for their lack of numbers to control such a vast landmass, it had to come through turning turning into a civil war. But there was no question they were ever going to allow the Ukrainians any form of uh, self government or anything like that. And um, that was, of course, one reason why those Ukrainians who did side with the Germans to begin with uh, soon realised, in fact, that they were being completely conned. And uh, and then you get sort of, you know, the um, Bandera lot and, um, uh, and so say, say forth, you sort of Ukrainians who were then fighting both the um, Soviets and, and the Germans at the same time.
3: And what do you make of the, um, the British reaction to Varos? Could Britain have done more to help their um, soon-to-be Soviet ally?
5: Well, the Soviets were pretty scornful about the sort of help we were sending, we couldn't do very much, uh, to be perfectly honest, because let's, quite, let's remember, you know, we're talking about the summer of 1941, where uh, we just lost, I don't know how many um, naval vessels in the Mediterranean, largely the evacuation from Greece, even worse, the evacuation from Crete, loss of um, capital ships at that particular time, um, growing threat in the Far East. We simply did not have the resources. Churchill wanted to make every effort uh, or impression of effort of helping. But I mean, you know, the trouble was what with the fighter aircraft we were sending them by the convoys? Um, on the whole, most of them were fairly obsolete Hurricanes, which were usually in pretty bad nick. Nobody was going to, when the RAF was told to hand over aircraft to send to Russia, um, they weren't going to hand over their best ar- aircraft. We were sending them Matilda tanks which were frankly obsolete already by that particular point. We were sending them greatcoats, which were useless in the Russian winter. Uh, We were sending them um, steel-nailed ammunition boots, uh, you know, steel-shot ammunition boots, uh, which would actually accelerate frostbite. You know, you can imagine, actually, the the, the Soviets were pretty pissed off at the sort of stuff we were sending. But at the same time, you know, there had to be a certain amount of superficial Allied solidarity in that particular way. The real question was what Stalin wanted was the Second Front, the attack on the Cherbourg Peninsula, which was a mad idea because, you know, basically they would have been bottled up on the Cherbourg Peninsula. It wouldn't have distracted any forces from the Eastern Front uh, as Stalin argued that it would, because the Germans had just enough troops in France to have bottled up any of the uh, British troops. And, of course, the trouble was in those days, the Cherbourg Peninsula was actually out of range, basically, to um, aircraft from even from the British Isles. I mean, i talking about fighter aircraft. So, I mean, they wouldn't have had air support. I mean, it would have been throwing away 100,000 men for no purpose whatsoever. And Churchill was, of course, absolutely right to stop it. And um, the Americans were, I think, both either dishonest or whatever, because they were saying oh, this should be an allied force. Well, I mean, there weren't any American troops yet in Britain to involve in that. So Churchill was uh, totally right to refuse that. And he showed great courage, in fact, to go to uh, Moscow in '42 to explain why there would not be any cross-channel invasion, at a time when, of course, the Russians were already retreating towards Stalingrad during Operation Blue. And, you know, that was a very stormy meeting with uh, Stalin, as I'm sure you know. The, The great paradox, in a way, was Churchill had no intention, if he possibly could, of attacking in the north. His... View of strategy, where well, it goes back all the way to the 18th century that the British traditional uh, strategy was a peripheral one where uh, using naval power you wore down your enemy in the Atlantic and above all in the Mediterranean, and you only went in for the continental clash towards the end of the war when your enemy had been weakened. The only big exception, of course, being the First World War when we actually did commit troops to major continental battles. Now, that's why Churchill was always keen on the Mediterranean, on Italy. Uh, partly because, of course, he wanted to uh, preempt the Soviet advance into Central Europe. And, of course, that was completely rejected at Tehran. He couldn't let go of that one. But uh, the Americans and the Russians agreed entirely that they were based continental powers and they believed in the Great Continental Clash, and therefore they were always going to be determined to it. So what you can say of Churchill is that even though he was completely wrong in his strategy of trying to go up through Italy and go into, um, through the Ljubljana Gap and uh, into Central Europe, um, even though he was completely wrong strategically and uh, tactically and diplomatically and every other way, he actually helped hugely because his resistance prevented cross-channel invasion in not just in 42 and uh, 43 because if there had been an attempt in 43 as the Americans wanted it would have been a disaster uh, frankly 1943
3: and on the other side could Germany's allies have helped it more could Japan and Germany between them with a combined strategy have had a chance of actually defeating the Soviet Union
5: you're right that there is a very curious lack of coordination you know there were no joint staffs at all. <laughs> Um, there were hardly even, apart from military attaches in both countries, there was really no liaison between the two. The only uh, time you found anything of that sort was when you had Japanese submarines off the east coast of Africa attacking British convoys going round the Cape and up to the Sirius Canal from the Red Sea and up there. But that was really just about the only, the only time, and that was obviously in uh, in forty two. The Japanese didn't even tell Hitler that they were going to launch Pearl Harbour. You know, I mean, in that in itself is, is quite astonishing. The Germans, funny enough, sometimes told the Japanese a bit more about their plans, and that, of course, was one of the advantages for the Americans because they managed to pick it up having broken the, the Japanese codes, uh, diplomatic codes, through magic and purple and whatever. But there was no, there was really no more coordination than that. What the Germans had hoped, of course was that the Japanese would have attacked in the Far East uh, in the autumn of 1941. Well, then that all goes back to 1939 and Kalkin Gol. And that's why, um, you know, if one, is, one cannot debate when did the Second World War start, you know, the Spaniards, it was in 1936, for the Chinese, it was 1937 or even earlier and so forth. But I, really, that was for my book, I decided, you know, to go really for kalkin of August because that actually was one of the most influential battles, although it fairly a small one, it was one of the most influential battles because that was the one which persuaded the Japanese that um, it was not worth attacking the Soviet Union. And so they had made their own non-aggression pact with, with the Soviet Union as a result of kalkin Gol. And, and they stuck to it. And um, Hitler really had hoped that they would attack in, and that was the only time when they could have made an effect, um, made an influence, because uh, Stalin would not have been able to bring in those um, Siberian divisions in the winter of forty-one.
3: Well, would you say that Operation Barbarossa, I mean, clearly it, it was a disaster in the end for Germany, would you say that was Hitler's biggest mistake or miscalculation?
5: Yes, because if he had maintained the status quo, the new status quo, after the defeat of France, and had, say, steadily built up his armies using the looted resources of the countries that he had occupied in uh, Western and um, Northern Europe. You know, he would have been in a very, very strong position if Stalin had then tried to launch his preemptive attack in, say, 42 or 43. And that could have been even more disastrous for the Soviet Union. Now, there is no, as far as I know, no uh, indication except for Elements which indicate that Stalin did have ideas of um, attacking Germany at some point in the future when he had built up the, the Red Army. But, I mean, the Red Army, until it actually had had to reform itself as a result of defeat in 1941, with totally different organisational structures, much smaller armies, forget those sort of huge corps and armies which they'd had in 1939-1940, um, which were unwieldy, and where the command structure was absolutely terrorised by uh, Stalin and by the NKVD. It needed the shock of defeat in '41 for really for the um, younger, aggressive uh, commanders like the sort of Zhukovs and uh, and and others to emerge as leaders, and for the NKVD to be taken off the back. And the commissars and the political departments uh, to be taken off the back of the Soviet commanders.
3: And so, is it fair to say that Barbarossa, because of the outcome, was the, the decisive moment in the war? Really, as well as being Hitler's biggest mistake, was it the biggest mistake, or the biggest misjudgment of the entire war? Oh
5: yes, I mean you know there's no doubt about it. Because as we you know the figures will show that eighty percent of the Wehrmacht casualties uh, were caused on the Eastern Front. It was the Eastern Front which basically broke the back of the Wehrmacht. Now. As you know, last year there was a tremendous debate in May uh, with Putin trying to claim that the um, Soviet Union had won the whole of the Second World War and all the rest of it. Now, there's an element of truth there. What Putin, though, does overlook are um, two very large elements. One is the strategic bombing offensive, which basically swung the balance of power on the Eastern Front because it forced the fighter squadrons and most of the 88mm to be brought back to Germany to defend the Reich from the bombers so you know that one cannot say that um, the strategic bombing campaign was useless. Uh, it had a huge effect on the Eastern front. I mean, of course, Harris, in his ghastly, obstinate way, was totally wrong about that he was going to bring Germany to its knees by smashing the cities. But he did have this side effect, which Harris seemed to be oblivious to. Mm -hmm. Churchill, though, was well aware of it. And Stalin was actually aware of it, but he wouldn't, of course, acknowledge it. Uh, The other, of course, is the huge uh, influence and effect of the American lease land, if it had not been for the half million military vehicles provided to the Red Army, the Red Army would never have had the mobility and the ability to advance as rapidly as it did in forty-three, forty-four, And that made all the difference in the world. I mean, there's no way that the Red Army would have got to Berlin before the Americans without those vehicles. And also American aid, food aid, of course, actually did save Russia from perhaps collapsing in famine in um, the winter of forty-two.
3: There's an interesting irony that America helped create the later Cold War inadvertently by allowing the Russians to get so far, so far east. Well, you can, yes, you can say that
5: in a sense, but I think that you can argue that the Cold War, actually its origins lay in 1941. And The origins of the Cold War lay in Stalin's trauma about being caught out in the way that he was. And that was why he was obsessed about occupying the whole of Central Europe purely as a courant sanitaire to prevent any form of surprise attack from the West in the future. And once he was determined to have that, which he was totally determined to have, um, then there was going to be a cold war whatever happened. So, I, th- I mean, that, 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 all the questions about sort of when exactly did the cold war uh, start.
3: And do you think that here in Britain we should pay more attention to Barbarossa because it doesn't, still doesn't quite feature as highly as, say, things like the Battle of Britain the blitz and d-day for us obviously britain wasn't directly involved but in actual fact did this have more impact on britain britain surviving the war than anything else did absolutely of course of course i'm
5: sure i mean it was um, it was in in a way slightly sort of pitiful um the way that uh, we paid so little attention to it, it have been apart from say john erickson and Alan Clark, you know, there'd been, been, they've been very little about it in, up until up until really so whatever it was, until about the um, late 1990s. A lot of it, of course, depended on the opening of the Russian archives during that short, wonderful period of five years, basically, or the military archives for five years, a little longer for the civilian ones. It was, of course, one of the main, main reasons that um, there was suddenly that sort of explosion of, uh, uh, of, of interest, which was um, so important. But, I mean, what has improved a lot, we have to remember, it wasn't just a question of uh, every country tending to see the war through their own experiences and their own memories. America still, to a large degree, sees the Second World War entirely through sort of, you know, Omaha Beach and the Battle of the Bulge and all the rest of it. But what has been, I think, extremely encouraging and important in the last 10 years or more has been the growth of the International History Conferences, which has brought together academics from all over i mean whether in australia or that one in hawaii which actually brought japanese and chinese historians to the same uh conference i mean that is terribly important when one thinks that sort of so many of the tensions in the far east still go back to the second world war and when one thinks of sort of the east china sea not so much the south china sea but the east china sea and the tensions there these conferences actually can do a huge amount of uh, uh, of good and also other change in a way if you like of the a much more global view of the war has come about, or internationalized view of the war. Um, also, thanks to historians from different countries, you know, working in different universities. I mean, which increased the quality of you know research and knowledge and debate in in a fantastic way. I mean, it really did make a big, big difference, and it it, it opened people's eyes to look at things very much more from the other side of the hill, which had been sorely lacking. And so, the parochial view of the Second World War started to diminish.
3: That was Anthony Beaver. His History of the Second World War was published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in 2012. And his most recent book is Ardenne 1944, Hitler's Last Gamble, which was published last year by Viking. And you can also read a version of my interview with Anthony in the June issue of BBC History magazine. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the private lives of the Tudors, Roman Britain, Heritage in Wartime, and the 1980s, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. Anthony is also going to be one of the speakers at our Winchester History Weekend, which is running from the 7th to 9th of October. To find out more about this and our
1: York Weekend on the 18th to 20th of November, please visit History Weekend. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
3: One of the regular sections within the magazine is our First World War, which charts the progress of that conflict 100 years ago through the words of those who lived and fought through it. We've also been including accompanying audio clips within the podcast. And this month we've come to June 1916. So here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is George Wainford, describing some casualties that occurred on board his ship during the Battle of Jutland.
2: A terrific bang... And the folks were there was a, a far side of the port side of the forecastle where all the hammocks underneath the fo'c'sle deck were stowed. Well, that was extinguished and there appeared a lot of uh, crying and not talking and shouting on the folks red. So I went and go up there and... Uh, Sub Lieutenant Chemist was there. He said, Where are you going, Wainford? I said, On the folks, I he said, I help. "So Keep them below out of it, find something else to do. So I wonder why he said that. So I found out later that there was the 4 four inch gun I've been the direct hit. They were all killed and injured. Commanding officer was killed. First Lieutenant was killed. One officer was killed. out of the three officers. And there was a... I think the... Co- the, uh, the coxswain that the weirs killed, and there were several more wounded. You know, it was a bit of a shambles, really. And... Uh, I saw one shack it was horrible. His, his whole stomach was torn open and it was all hanging out. He was trying to push it back. And, were... and that's why I was trying to keep out of it. came and said, I know, he said, get down below, then send that senior hand up here. So by that time, two or three of them had gone up. So I gave a hand on the deck itself, down below, pulling up all the debris.
3: That was George Wainford. And now let's hear from Corporal George Ashurst talking about the bombardment that preceded the Battle of the Somme. Me
4: and the officer, we walked down our front line, straight up, you know, and uh, just just standing looking at Germans' lines like that. And we could see the, the bursts of the shells all over, big ones in the distance, you know. And we could see the dirt and the sandbags all dancing up and down. And then you could turn about like this and all along our skyline, you would see flashes. You know, big flashes, little flashes. Hundreds of them, all along the skyline. You couldn't see the guns, you know, because you see these flashes. And over the top, it was like a roar of a score of trains going over, all at once, over the top of your head. You could them whizzing over, you know, biggins and little ones.
3: Yes. Did you think that it would be successful, the bombardment?
4: Yes, I did. I. Uh,
2: you started to believe what the general had told you then.
4: Oh yeah, I had. Yes, I thought. Well, this is certainly shifted Jerry. You know what I mean? He'd never stand up against a thing like this.
3: That was George Ashurst. You can read more from our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Okay, so that's almost it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking to the winners of this year's Wolfson History Prizes. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.